Well, we are grateful you've made the choice to visit us again to continue our extended in-depth study of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7, a sermon delivered by the perfect preacher. There isn't anything better or higher than to listen to a sermon delivered by the perfect preacher, Jesus Christ. And as Paul Earnhardt observed, it is safe to say that the Sermon on the Mount is the best known, least understood, and least practiced of all the teachings of Jesus. I hope you have your Bible ready in Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12 from the English Standard Version, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he had sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall see mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. These are the words that began the Sermon on the Mount, and these statements I've just read are commonly called the Beatitudes. These eight statements do not describe eight different kinds of people. The Beatitudes as a whole describe one kind of person, a Christian. Another way to say that, these statements describe the character of those who are faithful citizens in the kingdom and the real depth of joy that springs from that strength of character. May I say that again? These statements in Matthew 5, 1 through 12, describe the character of those who are faithful citizens in the kingdom and the real depth of joy that springs from that strength of character. All of this made possible by the grace of God and the person and work of Jesus Christ. Are you ready? Let's get started. I want to call your attention to the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want us to understand what it means to be poor in spirit. It will be helpful to consider the lives of various people in the Bible who were poor in spirit. 
The idea is, once we do the learning, we need to do the living. Each of us need to cultivate and maintain a proper view of ourselves before God. And this verse concerns that. I want to begin by making what may seem to be a rather simplistic observation. This beatitude in Matthew chapter 5 and in verse 3 does not confer any particular blessing on the economically poor. There may be the impression that poverty in and of itself is a blessing and that to be poor economically automatically means that you are cherished and protected by the mercy of God. Operating under that misconception, you might hear someone try to quote Matthew 5 verse 3 by saying, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, in the first place, that's a misquotation. It is a misreading of the verse. In the second place, while God is opposed to oppression, while he is mindful of the misfortunes and hardships of the innocent, there is no particular spiritual blessing in being financially destitute. Jesus didn't say, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What he said is, here in Matthew 5 and in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, throughout this lesson about this beatitude, do not think of economic poverty, but spiritual poverty. And here's what is meant. To be poor in spirit is that fundamental characteristic of realizing that you are spiritually empty that you have nothing to offer on your own, and that only by depending upon God can you be full, can you fill that emptiness. To say that another way, it amounts to a recognition that you are spiritually poor, spiritually bankrupt, and that only God can supply what you need through the gospel of Christ. By way of contrast, would you consider those who are proud in spirit, self-sufficient, arrogant in their independence, those with the attitude that says, I don't need anybody to give me any direction in life. I can do fine on my own without any moral standard from any external source, without prayer, worship, Bible study. I'm fine the way I am. This is the modern humanistic spirit of the age that places emphasis on man's great intellectual and moral resources and the notion of, of uh, man's sufficiency on his own. Humanism says man doesn't need a savior, shouldn't rely on the gospel, and doesn't need any spiritual blessings from God. This is the cry of folks who think they can do fine without God, that they don't need that which Christ died to provide. Sometimes this kind of pride reaches a point of 
absurd ambition such as was displayed by the spirit of the Babylonian ruler as depicted in Isaiah 14. He said, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation. I will be like the Most High. This was the arrogant, self-sufficient spirit of that great Babylonian leader. But Isaiah said, Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Those who tried to build the Tower of Babel that you read about back in Genesis, those men were characterized by the same spirit when they said, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. The prime motive was the glory of man. Every day we face choices between pride and humility. Humility is captured by this beatitude, this characteristic of being poor in spirit. In contrast to that humanistic, self-sufficient arrogance and pride, being poor in spirit, aware and willing to acknowledge that you are empty and only by depending upon God can you be filled. Aware and willing to acknowledge that you are spiritually bankrupt and only from God and through the gospel can you recover your life. We're talking about the kind of attitude expressed in Isaiah 66 in verse 2. But on this one will I look, God said, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Only as we recognize our true condition as people who have sinned, only as we understand and admit that we are spiritually poor, can we enter the kingdom and have the blessings afforded by God in that realm. Every time in the New Testament you read about a good faithful Christian, they started out being poor in spirit, and when they responded to God, they were filled because Jesus died for them. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's the next beatitude. And again, there is a typical interpretation. There is a common idea about this that misses the truth. Some have read this beatitude, and they have concluded this is talking about Anybody and everybody who is sad, regardless of what your attitude is toward God or your response to Christ, apart from any other consideration, if you are sad for any cause, you receive this blessing. In my study, I've decided that's not what this is about. The word mourn is not referring to sadness in general. This is about a specific kind of sadness. A fornicator, the old King James word, a sexually immoral person may be sad because his or her opportunity for immorality is limited. But there is no comfort from God in that sadness. 
A thief may mourn because he was caught and convicted, his source of income cut off. That doesn't necessarily mean he is blessed. The word mourn is not referring to sadness in any way, sadness in general. No, this is a specific kind of sadness because we go through these beatitudes with the spiritual context. I believe the word mourn here points to personal grief over sin. That's the kind of mourning that is blessed. One principal theme in Jesus' teaching was and is repentance. You are in Matthew chapter 5 with me now, but I'd like for you to go back into chapter 4 for a moment and find Matthew 4 in verse 17, where it says, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus went to the Jews who were lost in sin and bound by human tradition, and he said to them, Repent. You must change. You must stop your sinful ways and turn to God. Now, what must happen in order for a person to biblically repent? Personal grief over sin. No man can repent unless he is sorry for his sins. No person can really change until they feel remorse over their sin until they mourn over their lost condition. And one of the great functions of gospel preaching is to open the eyes of men and women to the horror of sin, to so testify of Christ and present the word of God that people begin to mourn over their sinful condition. And that mourning then lead, leads to repentance. I believe the mourning of Matthew 5, 4 has to do with personal grief over sin that causes a sinner to repent and seek the comfort of salvation from God that is now conferred through Jesus Christ. Penitently seeking that comfort results in being blessed by God. Now, I think it will be helpful for us to study this through the perspective of personal illustrations. A few minutes ago, when we were looking at what it means to be poor in spirit, I mentioned the examples of every faithful Christian in the New Testament starting that journey by recognizing their spiritual poverty. Let's use that same sort of approach. People who mourned over sin. I'm going to give you a list. Isaiah 6 and verse 5, the prophet was struck to the heart by his sin, and he mourned. Paul in Romans 7, 14 and 24, I am carnal, sold under sin, O wretched man that I am. And David in Psalm 32, verses 3 to 4, before he repented, he was mourning. So these people who came to recognize their sin mourned about their personal offensive behavior to God. Now, consider this question. Were they comforted? Yes, each one. Isaiah 6 and verse 7, he was forgiven. Paul in Romans 7 takes us right into Romans 8, 
where he's thankful for <clears throat> being not condemned in Jesus Christ. David was forgiven, Psalm 32, verses 5 and 1. So with Isaiah, David, and Paul, here is a process. You come to a place where you evaluate yourself and you have nothing to offer. You are spiritually bankrupt and you've become aware of your condition before God as a sinner. You are poor. And knowing you sinned, you feel bad about that sin, guilty, filled with remorse. And that mourning leads to repentance and you are comforted. As David said, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Very early in my efforts to teach Bible classes and preach sermons, I remember having some difficulty trying to explain this beatitude. I know now that a large part of that problem was I didn't really have a good grasp of what meekness is. And if you don't understand something well, there isn't any way you can explain it to somebody else. You cannot effectively explain what you don't understand yourself. Well, through the years, I've learned to study a little better, and I think I know what meekness is. Now the challenge is to get that definition across and the challenge is for me to be meek and encourage meekness in you. Let me try to clear up a common misconception. Meekness must not be confused with weakness. We are all familiar with the proverbial wimp, the shy weakling type, the person some would say, with a deep-seated inferiority complex. I'm afraid this is what many people think about when they hear or see this word, meek. And some so-called experts seem to conspire to promote this view. Even the American Heritage Dictionary says, easily imposed upon. And it gives a synonym, spineless. But true meekness in the biblical sense should never be confused with weakness or being spineless. And it should be said, meekness must not be confused with being wishy-washy, tossed to and fro. You know people and I know people who are indecisive or timid to a fault, always unsure. That's not meekness. The Greek word for meek was commonly used in the first century to describe wild animals that had been domesticated, trained, tamed, harnessed for good use. When the Jewish farmer took a wild animal and broke it into a beast of burden, the harnessed animal was said to be meek. It was a process of taking a powerful animal and turning that power and energy into a useful productive being. The power was still there, but was now under control. No one would call a good workhorse a wimp. Once broken, a good workhorse is a powerful, productive asset. The good workhorse accepts the reins of the master. Now, uh, under good restraint, 
Just a gentle tug is all that's needed to urge him in one direction or the other. A close kinship develops, and it's not long before the horse acts according to what it knows the master would want it to do. And if the master does not give explicit instructions, the horse knows the master. This is the way the word meekness is used in the original language. It doesn't mean weak or spineless. It is that disposition of submissiveness toward the master, willing to do as he directs, ready to follow and obey with that master for so long a time, knowing what the master's will is, moving in that direction, doing that work. The meek person is not so concerned about his rights, not passionate about justifying himself, not all wrapped up in pleasing men. The meek person is concerned about submitting to the master. Self-commitment to the Lord, the master, and therefore calm. Control, self-commitment, and submission to the Lord that results in a good use of one's life. Now let's turn to the Bible and see what else we can learn about meekness. Moses was meek. According to Numbers 12 and verse 3, the old King James says meek. The new King James says humble. Moses was the kind of man who was willing to follow the Lord's direction. He was meek. Meekness is commended in the book of Psalms over and over. Chapter 25, verse 9, the meek will he guide in judgment. The meek will he teach his way. Here are people who are willing to be guided and ready to learn. In Psalms 147, verse 6, the Lord lifteth up the meek. He casteth the wicked down to the ground. The Lord lifts up the meek. And Jesus, according to Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, was meek. I am meek and lowly. That was his invitation. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul was pleading with the Corinthians by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Meekness is a part of the fruit of the Spirit, according to Galatians 5 and verse 23. Meekness is essential in restoring a guilty sinner. In Galatians 6 and verse 1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Meekness is essential in receiving the word. James 1.21, therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. When you answer someone, 1 Peter 3.15 says, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. All through the Bible, there is meekness. It is an essential part of being a citizen in the kingdom. It is not self-assertive. It is living under the control and guidance of the master. But then it says, 
the meek shall inherit the earth. Is that a plot of ground? If you just isolate this statement, if you don't study any other passages about this, what conclusion would you be tempted to jump to? That you're going to be given a piece of land. But later, in 2 Peter 3 and verse 10 in the New Testament, it says that when the day of the Lord comes, the earth will be burned up. So you've got to move to some other explanation. The Jews sometimes use the expression heavens and earth to identify their place of residence. In 2 Peter 3, 10 to 13, and in Revelation 21 in verse 1, there is a new place of residence awaiting citizens of the kingdom. And that's going to be our residence with God in heaven, the new heaven and the new earth. And to enter that new place of residence, I need to be I need to be poor in spirit, recognizing my spiritual poverty. I need to mourn over sin that I commit. And I need to be under the guidance and control of the master. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, I hope I've made the takeaways obvious in my presentation. And I thank you for being with us for this important study. Next time, we will start by talking about what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. These video classes are brought to you by the Laurel Heights Church of Christ in McAllen, Texas. Thank you.